please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We are finally in chapter 3 of Philippians. Oh, we're getting there. Chapter 3 of Philippians. I'm going to read the first maybe 11 verses, but we'll touch on maybe just a couple of verses. We read from verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who work, worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might be have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has in mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain resurrection from the dead. I want to begin this morning with a quote. Because the passage that we're going to look at, it is not this whole 11 verses, of course, that will take us a couple of weeks, but the first three verses, it is about rejoicing. It is about rejoicing. I want to begin with a quote from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson said, rejoice in the Lord. It honors religion. It proclaims to the world, we serve a good master. Cheerfulness is a friend of grace. And it puts the heart in tune to praise God. What a way to start this morning. It is to rejoice. And if you recall, when we first began our journey in this epistle, the epistle, the very theme of this epistle is about rejoicing. It is about rejoicing. And that rejoicing points and marks out also the true believers from false converts and unbelievers. We're not talking about people who are struggling in rejoicing. We are talking about those who do not have rejoicing. And the Apostle Paul here continues. He wants to continue to encourage the believers who were under persecution, who were having trials, who were having tribulations, to say, finally, brethren, rejoice. And this joy that he's talking about here, the Apostle Paul, it can only be for certain people. If we, if we do not have this joy, brothers and sisters, we cannot fulfill anything in our lives. We will be miserable. Uh, this kind of joy is not what the world gives. It's not superficial. It is a supernatural work of God that he instills in the believers. And this joy inflames the Christian to be a grateful Christian. And he increases his lips to praise. 
and it moves his bodies, their bodies, your bodies to be offered up onto the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, this joy that Paul speaks about here this morning to us is not a joy that comes from this kingdom that follow the prince of the power of the air. This joy that Paul is talking about is the joy that we have in the king that belongs in heaven and he owns the prince of the power of the air and he owns the air. And brother, if you haven't, brethren, if you have not worked it out yet, you're going to enter the kingdom of God with much tribulation and much affliction and much trials. And this world in and of itself will try to kill the joy that you have in Jesus Christ, whether by, by trials, whether by tribulations, whether by persecution, and as we'll see here, whether by religious false um, beliefs, as the Jews will, will see in a minute. <clears throat> But I do dare say that every church has religious people in practice, but their hearts are still dead. My prayer this morning is that none of us are found to be religious outwardly as the Jews were, but inwardly. That we will not be found that we have some sort of religious outward uh, thing that we do and our heart is still dead towards Christ. If self-righteousness, if selfishness, if heritage, if works were actually what would bring joy, then the Apostle Paul should have stayed the way he was. Then the Apostle Paul would not have given to us this portion of Scripture to say, if anyone would have confidence in the flesh, I far more. If there was anyone who would have joy, I would have been me. But I did what? I counted everything as loss as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. And our passage this morning, it is about joy, but it's also about a challenge that will separate those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and manifest this joy and increasingly go into Christ to receive this joy and those who claim to be Christians, but yet they're just outwardly religious. So I've named the sermon this morning, the joy of a Christian life. And three things we'll have that we will look at. One, Christian's joy, a Christian's joy. Two, a Christian's joy attacked. And three, a Christian joy revealed. So look at verse one with me for a minute. Finally, my brethren, rejoice. I don't know how many times you've probably heard where's from the pulpit that you think is about to finish, but it doesn't finish. And we have this discussion, which one of us talks more? And we say, finally, or when we preach the gospel, the people say, can you give us two minutes? And it turns to be like a two-hour conversation. Well, the Apostle Paul hasn't finished yet. This doesn't mean finally, that's it, I'm coming to a conclusion because we know he's got a an, another chapter to go after this and 21 verses to go. But this word really should be more... Better translated, therefore, okay, uh, uh, concerning the rest, therefore, rejoice. And the amazing thing is, is the Apostle Paul, where is he? He's in prison, right? He's the one who's tied to uh, a guard or, or, or two. 
He is not able to do the things. He's not able to be expressing his theology to people, his giftedness of evangelism. He's stuck there, but yet he has in mind to rejoice. It's an amazing thing for me that always look at this apostle who, who in mind has this wonderful thing of rejoicing. And we will see that through the whole of this epistle. In the beginning of verse 1, chapter, ch- chapter 2, it says, Grace to you. Uh, that word grace comes from the word rejoice. Verse 3, it says, I thank my God. The word I thank, thank you, comes from the word rejoice. Offering prayer for you with joy, the apostle said. You're all partakers with me of grace. Grace speaks of joy. In this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice for your progression and the joy in the faith. It has been granted to you. The word granted is actually joy. You get the idea that the apostle Paul, he wants us to be joyful. So let's see, first of all, who are these people who are called to rejoice? Finally, my brethren. Who, who are these brothers? These brothers are not people who are Jewish by, by the flesh or unbelievers or the people who were persecuting the church, people outside the church, false converts in the church, religious people. No, these are the people who come from every walk of life, every nation, every color, every tongue, different upbringing, different parents, but they are the ones who have one Father, one Lord, and one Spirit. These brothers are those who are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not by their own will, not by earthly parents, but by God who caused them to be born again and to be children of God. Thus they are called brethren. And Paul again, he says, my brethren, there's always this affectionate thing about Paul. I love it. He says, my brethren, I am yours, you are mine. There is an affectionate thing here. It is a difference, and as I've said this before, to say you are my sister and you are my brother than say that's a sister and that's a brother. When we say mine, it means we are actually in communion with those people. And my desire this morning is not to bring you depression, my beloved. I'll leave that to the world. My desire for you this morning is that God himself will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you the joy of the Lord. For there's nothing greater for us than to have that joy of the Lord. And it says, brethren, if you notice, and brethren means all of you, every single born-again believer can have this joy in the Lord. My brethren, rejoice. How bad would it be that week in and week out, we tell you, hey, examine yourself. Stop grumbling. Stop disputing. Outdo one another. Serve one another. And it sounds all gloom and doom. And we never say, hey, you know what? Rejoice. You walk out of here and go, this is, this is, this is bad. This is madness. How do we do this? Well, here, this word for rejoicing, as we looked at before, it's an imperative. It's a command. You know that? We are commanded to rejoice. But as you obey the word of God in many areas of your life, you are blessed. It is the same thing with rejoicing. You want to rejoice, then you can rejoice by obeying the command of rejoicing. 
And it's actually in the present tense. That means we are not ever meant to be miserable Christians. We are meant to rejoice. We are meant to be joyful. And it's active. That means you must do something about it. And of course, it's plural. That means that every individual who is claiming to be a Christian and looks miserable, something is wrong with you, not God. Are you chasing after the things of God to make you joyful? It is a command for you to be joyful. But let me tell you what joyful does not mean. It does not mean that you're never going to feel pain. Okay? It does not mean that you're not going to have sorrows and tribulations and, and never get sad or never get troubled by anything and you walk around with this grin on your face like you're the joker. That is not the joy. But in spite of what's happening in your life, in spite of the trials and tribulations in life, there is a calm assurance in God. That's joy. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul says, approve all things to be excellent. Well, do them with joy. Speak the gospel truth. Do it with joy. Don't be selfish. Outdo one another. Do that with joy. And if you are mocked for Christ's sake and persecuted, rejoice. For great is your reward in heaven. Walk as a citizen of heaven and do so actually with joy. You want to stand as a soldier for Christ? Stand with a smile on your face and the joy of the Lord. You want to run the race like an athlete and look at the price that's ahead? Rejoice because there's a price ahead of you and you're going to want to receive it. You want to work as a farmer? You want Christ to, to work through you? Then rejoice and God will give the increase. And as you do that, the grumbling and the spewing and all those things will start to ease. And joy must be the one mark of a Christian life in a world that is so depressed. And as much as joy is a mark of a Christian, the opposite is true. Who wants to look? Who wants to hear you being a witness as a depressed person? I mean, who wants to hear depressed gospel? Who wants to hear, come to Jesus? Well, well, Jesus died for you, yeah, whatever. Who, who wants to hear that? Who wants to see what kind of witnesses are we if we ourselves cannot even reveal a bit of joy to a dying world? In fact, if you're preaching and teaching your children and you're not showing them the joy of the Lord, then what are you telling them? That Christ Jesus will bring you depression. So come to Jesus and then go to the doctor and take you know, antidepressants. That's, that's, that's madness. You are saying, well, why should these people rejoice under persecution? Because, you know, we read that before in chapter 1, verse 28 onwards. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. For them, it is a destruction. But for you, salvation, it's been granted for you, for Christ's sake, to suffer. How? Why would these people rejoice? Well, look at the text one more time. Finally, my brethren, rejoice. Where? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. What does that actually mean? That means simply this, that your rejoicing only comes from the Lord. If you are a Christian, the only joy that you will ever experience that is true is from the Lord. 
And there are many ways that you can experience this from the Lord. Many ways that these guys would have been humble. Let me give you a couple. Why? They've been set free from spiritual death and misery of hell and been brought to life. That should bring rejoicing to your heart. They, have, they were once blind by the things of God, but now they've been given spiritual eyes to behold the beauty of Christ. There is rejoicing in that. They once had a heart of stone that could not receive the things of God, but then they were given a heart of flesh, a new heart, the Spirit of God in them, sealed for redemption. Rejoice! They were once the enemies of God who fought against God. They ran away from Him, and now they've been reconciled to Him through His mercy. Rejoice! They were once restless, chasing after the things of this world, their flesh, they lusted after the things, their eyes wanted things, and their lives boasted in things. Now they have peace with God. They were by nature children of wrath, <clears throat> and now they're called the children of God. Uh, they were once set apart in this kingdom and, and living for this king. And now they've been set apart to live for the King Eternal and His kingdom. Rejoice! How else can we see this joy? How can we increase in this joy? Well, we've studied this. Your joy will increase in interceding for the saints. Pray for them. That's what Paul did and brought him joy. It comes from seeing other believers grow. You want to experience the true meaning of God, the true meaning of rejoicing, then see your brothers unite. You want to experience true joy, then serve the brethren. That's what we've studied so far. It comes from helping the brethren. It comes from the brethren. It comes from giving to the brethren. Serving the body of Christ brings joy. Loving Christ and his bride will bring joy. Worshipping Christ with the family of Christ will bring joy. Following the ways of Christ will bring joy. Evangelism and all these wonderful things will bring joy. And it's done in unity. I was talking to Brother Wes, I think, this week sometime. He said, well, how do people serve God? How do people serve Jesus? You can't see Jesus. Well, how do you think you serve him? How do you gain that from serving the brethren? True joy comes from one laying down his life for the brethren, being a witness for Christ, suffering for the gospel of Christ, dealing with people who are hard. You want to experience joy? That's it. This is it. And when you're filled with the joy that God gives you, when you feel like this, uh, you're like a man who's walking around like hovering, like you're on a hoverboard because you're so high on God. You're so excited about the things of God. And this is what joy is. Christians, we ought to offer a sacrifice to God, not externally only, <clears throat> but with a cheerful heart. But joy does and can be interrupted, <clears throat> excuse me, at the best of times. Through trials, as I said, through sin, false doctrine, 
And people may think that they're actually Christians and they're not. And that brings us to the second point. A Christian's joy is attacked. <clears throat> Look with me, verse 1 again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Why does Paul say, I'm writing the same thing to you again? What does it mean? Why does he have to write the same thing? And what does he mind? What, what, what is it a safeguard about this? Of course, the Apostle Paul explained it in verse chapter 1, verse 28 to 30. They were under persecution. They were under persecution. It was a hard time for them. They were persecuted. So he's writing the same thing to them. Why? Because they needed to hear it again and again. Why is it fitting? Why is it fitting that we need to hear something over and over again? I don't know. I had someone say to me not long ago, I've heard this before. And I've heard this before. Do you know if someone brings from this pulpit a different message than you have heard? Leave. Just, just leave. Because the message of the gospel doesn't change. So why is it important? Why was it important for the Holy Spirit to move the Apostle Paul to pen this for us? Well, there could be many reasons. Maybe because by nature, we are very forgetful. We're very forgetful creatures. We're sheep, right? We're forgetful. We're dumb. We just don't get it. Maybe because we're stubborn. And so Paul says, I have to write this again. And it's a safeguard for you. Maybe it's too much to handle. Some people perhaps learn in a little bit at a time. They can't handle too much. Paul says, I have to tell you again. Maybe the clutter of this world, the trials and the tribulation and even fear and even sin, oh, just you need to hear it again. Well, maybe because we are weak and we need to hear it again and again and again. So repetition is not necessarily a bad thing because Paul says it is a safeguard for you. For me to say something to you again, it's good for you to be reminded again. It's a safeguard. That means it protects you. It is good for you. It guards you so that you will not stumble and you will be strengthened by it. <clears throat> and if the Apostle Paul found it okay to write things again and write the warnings and the same thing again, that, that all we can get from this then is that Christians then we are susceptible to lose our joy in the Lord. Repetition is a good thing. It stirs the soul to Christ. It excites our affections to Christ and it moves our being to behold Christ. So we don't forget Christ. Believers can easily be moved by circumstances of life and become miserable in the joy of the Lord. And so Paul says, it is safe for, you to, for me to tell you this. Now let me give you this warning here. Beware, beware, beware. This is, again, beware is actually an imperative. It's a command. So Paul is calling these believers to have some sort of discernment. It's the same people he's talking about, but he's saying, beware, beware, beware. There's an emphasis here because these people were bringing about false doctrine, error, false gospel, and they were causing 
these believers perhaps to lose their joy. And again, for us, brothers and sisters, if, if, if we lose our joy somehow, can I encourage you that your joy is found in Christ and is found in the Bible? It is found in the Word of God. When you move away from the Word of God and study in the Word of God, I guarantee you not long after that you will have either a superficial joy or no joy at all until you study the Word of God and find the joy in the Lord. And so he begins by saying, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. You know, it's, it's kind of strange to us when we talk about dogs. If I say, beware of my dogs, they're this big. They're not going to do anything to you. If anything, they're going to lick you to death. But that's, that's not what Paul had in mind here because the dogs at that time were not dogs that were, you know, house pets, right? They were dogs that were vicious. And of course, this is talking about people, the Judaizers, right? The people who had false doctrine. And they were like dogs, Paul says. And, and they were, but these dogs at that time were like scavengers. They didn't play dead. They didn't shake hands. Uh, they, they didn't go on the pippy mat. They didn't do any of those things. They were wild dogs. And they roamed the streets and they ate garbage and they ate whatever they wanted. In fact, some commentators say they even went outside the city and ate some of the dead corpses. And they would eat these vile things and then carry the disease with them and spread this filth wherever they went. And Paul is saying that these dogs, he's expressing that they are like vile animals and that these people are devouring people with their filth and they're spreading it wherever they go. Their disease of false doctrine, their disease of false doctrine, ungodliness, they were attacking the people of God wherever they went. If you recall Christ our Lord, <clears throat> when he was on the cross, he had mockers. He had people who ridiculed him. In fact, we read about these dogs and these evildoers when Jesus was on the cross in Psalm 22, verse 16 to 18. Speaking of Jesus and what was going to happen to him in Psalm 22, verse 16 to 18, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. He wasn't talking about literal dogs. He was talking about these very people and a band of evil doers have encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They, that's the dogs, that's the evil doers. They are staring at, they stare at me and they divide the garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So Paul is saying that these people, uh, they are like these wild dogs seeking blood. They're hungry evildoers, and they delighted to see Christ Jesus on the cross and his blood being spilled. What are these people like? They, they're like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must they do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He says, I have since my youth. I've continuously done it. He had a zeal, continuously obeyed, but in their action towards God, they were just dogs. They were trying to earn salvation by their own works, by their self-righteousness, their own perfection, their religiosity. But in the eyes of God, they were nothing but filthy dogs. That's pretty, it's pretty graphic, I, th I think. 
And what's amazing this here is I, I believe Paul is a master at this because it was actually the Jews who were called the Gentiles dogs because they were apart from the kingdom. And Paul says, no, you're the dogs. And you're the evildoers. And these people do not belong to the kingdom of God. In Revelation 22, 15, it tells us who and where they are. It says, outside, outside of the kingdom, outside are dogs. They don't belong in the kingdom of God. And then Paul adds a little bit more character to these people. He says, so beware of these dogs, but they're not just dogs. He says, beware of evil workers. They are the same people. These false people, false brethren, false religious people. They are religious, but here's the thing. They're active. They're active people who bring about evil doctrine. Their doctrine's not from God. Their doctrine's from hell. The Apostle Paul wrote a whole epistle called Galatians. And read, you can read that for yourself. But the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1.8, even if we nor an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached, he is to be accursed. The flock of God, listen, brothers and sisters, are meant to know the difference between truth and error. We are meant to test every spirit. We are meant to understand the truth of the gospel and fight for it. Remember, we studied this at large, that this church is a relatively healthy and good church. Then for the Apostle Paul to write this, be aware, be aware, be aware, that means it's easy to fall into error. That means people can fall into error. And when falling into that error, if you are a Christian, that can rob you of your joy. That means whether you're two months in the faith, two years in the faith, or 10 years like these Christians were, you're still susceptible to fall into error and listen to wrong teachings. Beware means be on guard. Pay attention very closely. This word speaks of having discernment. And once you had that discernment, once you discern what's wrong, then get rid of it. And then he says, beware of the false circumcision. But the word there, I think it's a King James that said mutilation, which means cutting. Beware of, of the cut. This is speaking, of course, of the covenant that God made with the Jews that every male child on the eighth day, they ought to be circumcised. And they were called to be circumcised as a nation to be set apart from the rest of the nation. And this sign was only supposed to be a symbolic sign, an external symbolic sign that would point to a greater thing, which was to be circumcised in the heart, which we will look in a minute. But the Jews, of course, they took it to, to another level. And these false teachers, they would come in and they were disrupting the churches of God. And they were telling people, no, it's not faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith and works. It's faith and circumcision. And they were spreading this vicious, uh, vile doctrine everywhere, robbing the Philippians as well of their joy. So Paul is writing this. And in Galatians, here's what Paul says in Galatians, by the way. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? If, if, if you're saved by 
circumcision only. But why am I getting persecuted? Right? And then he goes on to say, in chapter 6, verse 12, those who desire, desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. And then he goes on to say, in chapter 6, verse 15, of Galatians we are, for neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Anything that is external gives no benefit for the eternal. Your external works, your external cutting won't do you any good. So then Paul leads the Philippians and tells them the reason why they ought to rejoice all the more, which brings us to the third point. Look with me in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision. This is a definite thing. We are the brethren. The brethren who were born again are the true circumcision. What on earth does that mean? It means that you have been circumcised in the heart. This was not a circumcision that took place externally, but it was a circumcision internally done. And this was not done by flesh and blood. This circumcision was ministered by the hand of the Almighty God Himself. When He took out your heart of stone and He replaced it with a heart of flesh. What a wonderful truth. This is the Almighty God who actually does this circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And this is taught in many places, even in the Old Testament. Of course, we see that in in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. But we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, it says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And think about this. The intent of circumcision to save people, if that's the case, then what would happen to females? That means in the kingdom of God, no women, just men. Right, So that took it completely to the, to, 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 to the extreme. But the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and I'm giving you a lot of verses, but I want to make this argument so you get it. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outwardly in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is Inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. This circumcision is not achieved by man's own blood. This circumcision was achieved by the blood of the covenant through Jesus Christ our Lord. The blood flowing from an eight-year-old male child who perhaps bring external cleansing in your body somewhere. Just 
Don't want to say too much for the little kids. But the flowing blood of the Son of God brings everlasting life. That's the blood that we want to we look at, not the external stuff. And so he says, well, how is this revealed that we are the true circumcision? Well, look at it. Look at the verse 3 again. We are the true circumcision who do what? Who worship by the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice something, the order. You first need to be circumcised in the heart. You need a new nature. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. You need to have new affections, new desires, and new passions. And only then you can truly worship God in the Spirit of God. Until then, any other form of worship apart from this, it is useless. It is not acceptable to God. It is not recognized by God. It is a false circumcision. It is an evil work, and it is rejected by God. What do we notice here? Who is that peace that, of this worship? God who is the channel for the believers to worship God. It is the Holy Spirit of God. And through Jesus Christ, He has opened up the floodgates of heaven for us to step behind the Holy of Holies, no longer to be as judged, but to be as children and to cry out to Him anytime, anywhere, Abba, Father. What a great truth. This is joy. And this word, by the way, worship, that we worship, it speaks of someone who is genuinely bringing service to others. I want you to understand that. Worship is bringing service to others. That's what worship is. That's what this word is not just talking about. Are two different words. One is when one day you prostrate before God and you cannot lift your hands up. That's worship. This one is service. This is not a hypocritical, false religious act, but it flows from the Spirit of God and it continues to flow in the life of a believer. The same apostle wrote Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 and 9 and says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. You, you, you can't please God whatsoever. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He does not belong to him. And that's worship. You're circumcised, you worship God in the Spirit of God, and then it says, and glory in Christ Jesus. And that word means boasting. You are boasting in Christ Jesus, not in circumcision. Christ becomes your boast, your new treasure, your new pleasure. Believers, we give honor and glory to God. By the Spirit of God, we bring worship to God. Believers, they boast in His wonder, in His person, in His love, in His glory, in His mercy, in His grace, in His sacrificial death and resurrection, in the penalty that He prayed, that He paid, and the life that He provided for you. That's boasting. May it never be that you will boast in anything that you think you're doing as a Christian. God forbid. 
You boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And in Him, you will have the fullness of joy. And we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. The confidence believers have has nothing to do with external rituals. Nothing. He is our confidence. He is our redemption. And this word confidence, it is a perfect active participle. What does that mean? You are continuously actually drawing your confidence from Christ and not from the flesh. Continuously. And the flesh here is speaking of people, men's own works and efforts to make themselves right with God, his own self-atoning. says, brethren here, we put no confidence in that whatsoever. The brethren reject all notion that somehow being circumcised or cut or doing any good external work will actually lead you to Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I really have to read this. I was going to skip it, but I'm not going to. Romans chapter 8, and let's see our confidence. Brothers and sisters, I told you this morning, I want to excite your love and your desire and your passion for Jesus Christ. But I can only do that by the word of God, and I can only pray that God the Spirit will move you. Chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. No one. Will tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Look at verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now look at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus and people of God say, Amen. That is our joy. That is our confidence. Our confidence is not in flesh and blood. Christians, brothers and sisters, rejoice and be glad. Be glad in the Lord. The Apostle Paul later on says in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why does he say that? In verse 3 it says, Because your names are written in the book of life. I mean, is there anything else that we can rejoice about more than that, that my name, Ralph's name, is written in the book of life? John's name and Wes's and Lydia's and Pam's, your names, those of you who were born again, your names are written in the book of life. Then rejoice. We worship in the Spirit, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. But I want to give you a quote from John Trapp, a Puritan. It says, no duty almost is more pressed in both testaments than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. And it is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. We are called through the pages of scriptures to have joy in a joyful God. God is not depressed. 
God is not gloom and doom, not to his children. He's a loving God, and we are called to rejoice in him. First Peter 1.6 said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, if it's necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. If I ask you, do you have trials in your life and you don't put your hand up, I'm going to have to humbly tell you you're lying. Whether your trial seems minute or big, there are trials in our lives. And we're going to be entering that kingdom, as I said, with much tribulation. I don't want to enter the kingdom of God depressed. You know, live my life here depressed. I don't want you to live your life depressed. But why are some Christians joyless? Let's, let's grab all this and, and try to use it as an application. Should believers be without joy? The answer is no. We should not have not joy. We should always be joyful. Or maybe sometimes it can be many things. Maybe you've allowed the worldly pleasures in your life to draw you to it. Maybe there is sorrows that is consuming your life. Maybe there are temptations in your life that are ruling you and trials that are killing you and sin that is ruling you. But there is hope. There is hope in the Lord. Seek Him. Seek Him in His Word. Pray. And repent of your joylessness because it is a sin not to be joyful in the Lord. It doesn't matter what's happening to us. This is just as much a sin as any other sin. If we are commanded to be joyful, then we ought to repent. But what do I do? You run to Christ. Listen, how many of you have studied church history? You know, you see the martyrs. Why could these martyrs be joyful all the way to the burning, you know, being burned? Well, why could... Stephen, say that Stephen, or Stephen, I don't know how to pronounce it, I think it's Stephen. Why could he, could he say, Father, forgive him? Why? Was he depressed? He saw the joy of the Lord. We need to be like this, brothers and sisters. And the closer we draw to Christ, as Paul did, we would have such joy that is impossible to be found anywhere in this world. And we will know also the truth from error. We will understand that. We must abide at the feet of Christ, sit at the footstool of the Master, and learn from Him, drink from Him, be in His Word, hear His Word, keep His Word, and serve the people of His Word. And your joy will be a hundredfold. It's not just sitting at home and doing what the Eastern culture does and go, mmm, joy. That's not how we receive joy. You want to be joyful? This is how you do it. It's up to you. Chase after it. Does that mean, like I said, that we constantly jump up and down like some churches, you know, they bark like dogs and go and laugh like hyenas, you know? That's the joy of the Holy Spirit? No, it's not. I don't know what spirit that is, but that's not the spirit of God. But there is an internal affection that God gives you that is expressed in gladness. It is deep-rooted in Christ Jesus, and it comes from the veins of Emmanuel, and he gives it to his children. That's joy. 
It is a supernatural joy given to believers even whilst they're in trials and tribulations of life. This joy, by the way, it is most precious. It is the very fountain of blessing. And the more you drink from this, the more your cup will overflow because it is Jesus who gives it to you. Chapter 15, verse 11 of John says this. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be where? In you. Ask Jesus' joy that you that your joy may be made full. Wow. That 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 is out of this world joy. It is not found in your work. It is not found even in your wife and in your children. It is not found in your puppy dogs and is not found in your cats. If you're a cat person, you shouldn't be. It is found in Christ Jesus. Sorry, cat lovers. Sometimes it can be that you're listening to the wrong things because he's saying, be aware. You want to hear false teachers? Put on a tally. That's it. Put on a TV. Go on YouTube. And only God knows what you will find on YouTube. Beware what you watch. Beware what book you buy just because you get it from a Christian bookstore that is called Kurong. It does not mean you can't go wrong. It does not mean it's Christian. We need to be aware of it. Be aware of all the doctrine you've been learning from Saving Grace Bible Church. And you don't go outside and you grab that doctrine and you compare it with Saving Grace Bible Church. No, you grab this doctrine and then you look at it and you say, that does not go with the doctrine that the elders are teaching me. How do we look at these Judaizers in our days today? What do they look like today? They're self-righteous people. Religious people who try to save themselves. Outwardly, they may show some sort of Christian ethics. Listen, brothers and sisters and, and beloved friends, on our atheists that can show you more Christianity than some Christians that I know. So how, how, do we, how do we know that? But here's a question for you, my beloved brothers and sisters. Ask yourself this morning, in the depth of your heart, what's robbing me of this joy this morning? What is it? What is it that's robbing me personally? So I can't see your heart. I don't know what's going on with you. Sometimes I do. You talk to me, but I don't know everything. I'm not God. But here's another question, and we'll begin to bring this to an end. That must be asked. Because none of these things mean nothing. And a question you want to ask this morning, are you circumcised in your heart? Have you been circumcised in the heart? Has your heart been renewed? Are you a changed person? Can you say for certain that you are a Christian? You are in Christ and you belong to his kingdom? We're not asking this morning, Are you reading your Bible or do you listen to a sermon or do you come to church because you're here? The question is not, do you do Bible studies or in fact that you read all the Puritans that you want or all the big fat MacArthur theological books or that you've been baptized or that you're a member of this church 
Or do you go Friday nights to a Sam's or John's or Ralph's for fellowship? No. Are you born again? Have you trusted Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Christ? How do you know if you love somebody? Do you just tell them that you love them? Or do you show your affections for the one that you love? Maybe you have a good understanding of Christ and what He has done, who He did it for, why He did it, but nothing changes you. That means you're still outside the kingdom of God and you, my friend, still belong to the kingdom of darkness. Maybe at one point you cried, you got emotional, or you felt something, I have a feeling. You prayed a prayer, oh Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. My kids, when they were little, they continuously said, forgive me, Daddy, because I was smacking them. You even said, hey, I am a sinner. I get it. No, I am a sinner. But behind closed doors, you live worse than dogs and evildoers. When you're all by yourself, there is no affections for Jesus, no desire for his word, no desire for his people. I call upon you to repent and believe. And don't think of the person next to you, please. I beg of you, examine your own heart. Am I born again? Has Christ circumcised my heart? Have I trusted him solely for my soul? And if I have, how do I know? The scripture tells us from this we know that we pass from death to life when we do what? When we love the brethren. You want to examine if you are? then have a look how you love your brethren. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, not your flesh. If you have not been circumcised in the heart, there is something you want to cut off, your self-righteousness. Your self-righteousness. Your own good works, your own rituals, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in baptism, you're trusting in Bible studies, and you're trusting in your elders and in their teaching. No, repent and put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. To my brethren, I'm going to end with this. God wants you to be joyful. God does not want us to be sad and walk this life depressed. So drink from him and outdo one another that that love and that passion and desire of Christ will bring that joy to its fullness. Amen. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. It is so rich, full of goodness. Father God, for those of us who know you, how often we stumble, how often, Lord God, we take our eyes of you, allow things of the world and even sin even trials, even tribulations, Lord, affect the way we have joy in you. Oh, Lord, we pray, Father, help us. Help us, Lord God, to see these things are worth nothing. They were, for a blink of an eye, Lord God, we are here, and then we will be in glory. May we worship you in spirit and in truth, in glory in Christ. And may we never be found to have any confidence in the flesh. And for those, Lord, who have not known you yet, Please, I beg of you, Father, as it is, Lord, they cannot do it on their own. You must penetrate their heart. 
and cut them in pieces, Father. For your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that your word has gone out with mighty power to cut the hearts of the unbelievers and cause them to be born again. Amen.